Chapter Five of George Washington. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. George Washington by Callista McCabe Courtney. Chapter Five. Recapture of Fort Ticonderoga by General Burgoyne. Battle of Brandywine. Battle of Germantown. Burgoyne's surrender at Saratoga. Washington at Valley Forge. Alliance with France. 1777 to 1778. The fame of the American cause reached Europe, and many foreign officers came over, asking to be allowed to give their help. Among them was Thaddeus Kociusko, a military engineer from Warsaw, Poland. Washington asked him, Why do you come? To fight for American independence, he said. What can you do? asked General Washington. Try me, was the brief reply. Washington tried him, and he proved a valuable help throughout the Revolution. Another who volunteered his services was Washington's devoted friend, the young French nobleman, the Marquis de Lafayette. Though scarcely twenty years of age, Lafayette loved human liberty more than home and friends and the easy life of the French court, and at his own expense he fitted out a ship loaded with military stores and sought to aid the Americans in their struggle. Washington loved him for his fine spirit, charming manner, and soldierly bearing. He became a member of the commander's family, and his name is honored by every American. The year 1777 was a very hard and trying one. Washington's forces were too weak to fight regular battles with the British. He used every device to make General Howe think he had a strong army, and at the same time tried to convince Congress that he could not act for want of men and supplies. The British kept him guessing about what they would do next. Would they attack Philadelphia, or the fort on Lake Champlain? He did not dare to withdraw troops from either place to strengthen the other. General John Burgoyne, one of Howe's lieutenant-generals, arrived from England in the summer of 1777. He landed at Quebec, and marched with eight thousand men, British, Germans, and Indians, to Fort Ticonderoga. The garrison of thirty-five hundred men surrendered. Valuable stores were taken, and the presence of this new army discouraged the Americans. But Washington only said, We should never despair. If new difficulties arise, we must only put forth new exertions. He could not leave his own position, but he showed the greatest wisdom in arranging and locating the forces in the north. He sent his valued Virginia riflemen, under Colonel Daniel Morgan, to help fight Burgoyne's Indians. For months, Washington had watched the British fleet in New York Harbor, and now it put to sea with eighteen thousand men on board. Would it go to Boston, or to Philadelphia? Washington led his army toward Philadelphia, believing this would be the British point of attack, and soon after the fleet appeared while Washington was camped at Germantown, near Philadelphia. The fleet sailed away, however, without making an attack, and the summer passed in marching troops here and there, calling them out and sending them home again. Washington had a busy time watching Burgoyne on the Hudson and the lakes, watching Howe, who was occupying New York and New Jersey, and guarding the coast. The fleet finally disappeared, and, after a council of war, the American officers decided to leave Philadelphia and all march north together to attack the British forces in New York. This was such an important move that a letter was sent to Congress asking permission. The messenger who carried the letter was Alexander Hamilton a mere youth, 
though he was captain of artillery. He was very small, but so brave that they called him the Little Lion, and Washington addressed him affectionately as My Boy. Congress approved of the plan to attack New York, and the army was about to march when it was reported that the British fleet was sailing up the Chesapeake Bay. Washington's army halted near Philadelphia. The commander-in-chief knew that there were people in Philadelphia who did not favor the cause of American freedom, thinking it foolish for the poorly equipped Continental troops to fight the British. To encourage the people of Philadelphia, Washington decided to parade the army through the city. He rode at the head with his staff. The men were poorly clad and had no uniforms, but their guns were bright and they carried them well. They made a brave showing, and after the parade marched into camp on the Brandywine Creek. The British landed at Elkton, Maryland, about fifty miles from Philadelphia. Washington sent troops of light horse to ride about the country and annoy them in every way possible. One young commander, Henry Lee, of Virginia, was so daring that they called him Light Horse Harry. He was another of the brave young officers whom Washington loved to have about him, and who helped him overcome the difficulties that beset him at every turn. Washington spent most of his time in the saddle, watching the march of the British. His troops were unequal to the enemy in every way, and though the war had lasted more than two years, he had never dared to risk a real battle. The time had come when he must make a stand in the open, or acknowledge to the world the weakness of his army. He had about eleven thousand men, while the British numbered about eighteen thousand. He appealed to his soldiers to do their best and make a firm stand in defense of their national capital, Philadelphia. The Battle of the Brandywine was fought on September eleventh, 1777, and the Americans were badly defeated. Following this, Congress moved to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and the British under Cornwallis took possession of Philadelphia, which they entered dressed in their bright scarlet uniforms, the bands playing God Save the King. What a contrast to the ragged Continentals who had marched there a few weeks before! Washington did not despair. His courage and determination grew stronger in the face of defeat, and he firmly believed his fortunes would take a turn. After resting his troops he made a surprise attack on General Howe at Germantown. He was in a fair way to success, when a heavy fog came on. The Americans could not tell their own soldiers apart from the enemy, and a panic took place. But Washington, who was in the hottest of the fight, was not discouraged even at this disaster. He had proved to the world that his troops were not afraid of the British army, and his men, in spite of their losses, were encouraged by this encounter with trained European soldiers. The English had looked down on the American patriots, but they were now beginning to find them worthy foes. During this time the army in the north had been busy. General Burgoyne had sent a force to Bennington, Vermont, to seize cattle and supplies, but General John Stark, at the head of the New England militia, completely routed them. He captured a quantity of guns and ammunition and hundreds of prisoners. At the same time, west of the Hudson, another body of British was defeated and their tents and stores taken by the Americans. This was joyful news to Washington, and these victories served to keep up the spirits of the patriots, and also to disgust the Indians with their British commanders. The militia, too, gained confidence, overcoming their fears, and finding they were a match for the British and the Germans. Recruits flocked to the American camp in the north, and Burgoyne was soon surrounded. In the great battle near Saratoga, New York, he was completely defeated and surrendered to General Horatio Gates on October 17, 1777. 
This splendid victory gave the Americans large quantities of military stores, but most of all it gave them confidence, for they had at last beaten the British forces. The experience of actual warfare and the example of the trained soldiers had taught them how to fight. One of Burgoyne's officers said that when the Continental troops were drawn up to receive the surrender, they stood like soldiers, though dressed as if they had come from the farm or the shop. He was surprised to see how straight and strong and fine they were. General Gates ordered his men not to cheer or show any desire to humiliate their beaten foes, and this courtesy tendered him by General Gates was reported to Parliament by General Burgoyne when he returned to England. He was especially touched by it because he had needlessly burned some of the beautiful homes of the very officers who were so gracious to him. This courtesy was very fine in Gates, but he failed in his duty to his commander-in-chief and in many ways was unreliable. He did not report the victory to Washington, as was his duty, and paid no attention to his commands. He did not send the troops to Philadelphia, as he was ordered, and he did not even return the company of Virginia riflemen until it was too late. General Gates and his friends were doing all in their power to destroy the good name and authority of Washington. They kept back troops Washington needed, and then criticized him for not fighting a decisive battle. But Washington endured their fault-finding in silence, for he knew that an open battle with such a powerful foe meant certain defeat, and patriotism so filled his heart that it left no room for selfish ambition. He was not seeking personal glory, but independence for America. If General Howe had attacked him, he would have fought bravely, but he and his fellow officers knew it was unwise to attack the British. In many skirmishes, however, his troops showed courage and steadfastness and proved they were making progress in the arts of warfare. A few months before this, Congress had made some changes in the quartermaster, the officer who attends to supplies, and in the commissary, food, departments, although Washington had opposed the changes. The result was a bad mix-up in getting supplies to the army, and food and clothing spoiled and went to waste for want of wagons to carry them to the camp. Winter set in and the troops were poorly clad and worn out from hardships. There were not enough blankets to go around, and many of the men were obliged to sit by the campfires all night, and thus got very little rest. Washington decided to go into winter quarters in the village of Valley Forge, about twenty miles from Philadelphia. From here he could watch General Howe's movements and be ready, if necessary, to defend Congress, which now met at York. On the march to Valley Forge many of the soldiers were barefooted, and they left a trail of blood in the frozen ground. To add to their suffering, someone blundered, and they were several days without food. Washington was blamed for going into winter quarters and not driving the enemy out of Philadelphia. He wrote to Congress giving a full account of how he had been annoyed and hindered by those who should have helped him. He told them that nearly three thousand of his men were unfit for duty, because they were almost naked and two thousand more were sick for want of food and shelter. During this cruel winter of 1777 to 1778 many men froze and starved to death in camp and hundreds of horses were lost. Washington, who was always careful about other people's property, was sometimes obliged to let his men seize food from the farmers. Congress did not stand by him. Some of the members were jealous of his power and his influence. General Gates was the popular hero after the victory of Saratoga, and a plot hatched by officers and members of Congress almost succeeded in putting him in Washington's place. 
Though Washington's plan had made the defeat of General Burgoyne possible, Gates claimed all the credit. Washington bore all this fault-finding and unfairness with patient courage. He kept his temper, and devoted himself to his suffering men, whose endurance touched his heart. Fortunately for America, the conspiracy against Washington failed, and the only result was to make his name and fame brighter and more widespread. While the Americans in camp at Valley Forge were so miserable, the British, twenty miles away, were spending a gay winter in the homes of the people of Philadelphia. Why they did not attack and destroy the wretched Patriot army was a mystery. After a while provisions and other necessities were secured, and the camp became more cheerful. Mrs. Washington and the wives of some of the other officers came to join their husbands. Baron Frederick von Steuben, a German officer, who had served in several wars and received great honors, was sent to America by friends in Paris. He offered to fight for the colonists without rank or pay. Congress sent him to Washington, who realized that his experience would be valuable, and who asked him to drill and discipline the troops. Steuben was a wonderful soldier, and after a few weeks under his direction, the army learned something of real military tactics, and how to work together like a great machine. He not only drilled them, but looked after their comforts and won their love by his kindness. Not all the work for freedom was done on the battlefields and in the camps. While Washington and his soldiers were skirmishing with the British, and while they were encamped at Valley Forge, Benjamin Franklin, one of the foremost thinkers and statesmen of the time, was in Europe making friends for the American cause, and asking help for the struggling colonists. The King of France made a treaty of alliance with him, which Congress signed May 4, 1778. Three days later it was celebrated in camp with thanksgiving and parades and the news that France was to help the American cause thrilled every patriot's heart with joy. End of chapter 5 Recording by Bill Borst